Hello, and welcome to your favorite movie. I'm your host, Evan Kelly. I've always loved movies. I feel they have a unique power that isn't found in other types of media. So I've invited a few of my friends to come and talk about their favorite movies. This isn't a debate. I'm not trying to challenge anyone or determine the objective greatest movie of all time. My hope with these conversations is simply to begin to reach the heart of what makes film so resonant. My guest today is Jared Walter. Jared and I have been watching movies together for a long time. In high school, his taste was much more fully realized than mine. He exposed me to serious films, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Taxi Driver, at a pivotal time in my fledgling career as a cinephile. To this day, I can always turn to Jared to learn about interesting and artistically diverse films. Jared's favorite movie is the 1969 countercultural road film Easy Rider. After a big score, two hippies travel from Los Angeles to New Orleans in hopes of making it in time for the big Mardi Gras celebration. Along their route, they meet kooky commune members, violent rednecks, and everyone in between. The film paints an allegorical picture of the growing cultural divide of the era. No other film so eloquently captured the spirit of 1969, thanks in large part due to the authenticity of director Dennis Hopper, his co-star Peter Fonda, and their co-writer Terry Southern. The film also boasts the critical breakthrough of Jack Nicholson, and a generation-defining folk rock soundtrack. Easy Rider was an explosive success, grossing $60 million on a production budget of less than half a million. Critics were similarly engrossed by its sophisticated critique of contemporary American morality and its shallow conceptualization of freedom. It is considered by the American Film Institute to be one of the 100 greatest films of all time. Join me on my journey with Jared Walter. Jared Walter, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. You know, honestly, I, uh, I'm really happy to get this going. Yeah, me too. What's your favorite movie, Jared? Selecting a favorite of anything gets harder for me as I've gotten older. And I think just getting more familiar with things that I like, you know, particularly movies being a big passion and arts in general. But uh, today, my friend, we are talking about Easy Rider. Yes, Easy Rider. Very good choice. Thinking about what it means to me to select a movie like Easy Rider, something so far removed from what I know as reality, Mm -hmm. considering the nature. Uh, Just watching this movie last night, again, just to have it fresh on my mind, you notice that the Southwest, the great American West, is a place that, at the time when I first watched this, and even today, which... I watched this first in freshman year of college, I believe. Same, actually. Like that whole scenescape immediately draws you to something that's completely different than the Midwest. And that'll immediately put me into the story. These two people are here. It's simple. Let's go. Let's pick it up. Let's let's move sort of thing. There's almost a sense of urgency. Yeah, I think that uh, Dennis Hopper, the director, does such a fantastic job setting up those opening scenes and having those wonderful montages where just a good rock track is playing and we see them motorcycling all throughout, like you said, the the American Southwest, those vistas that they captured are just gorgeous. And I think that 
beyond just the aesthetic beauty, I think that's actually really important to the ethos of the film because while I do believe that the film is critical of American culture and American conformity, I wouldn't call it anti-American specifically because they do go through such great pains to show the beauty of America's natural land. Yeah, you know, and you talk about pains and from what I remember, and we'll get to this again later, but I believe that the closing sequence with the helicopter when when the bike explodes and it's on fire and, you know, it gets a long tracking shot and the, the lens angle gets wider and wider. I think that that helicopter that they used had like a smaller motor than a golf cart they joked about, right? No and way. <laughs> and they have two people and a camera strapped on to this. It's like an eight, in order to make things big, we don't really understand what goes behind that and how much pain it does take to capture that beauty. And yeah, you're right. I think it does question the American dream and poke holes in its armor. Mm-hmm. But it also is prideful of its nature, of its connectivity to it, and its connectivity to other people, I guess. Can you speak a little bit more to the way that the film ideologically challenges the American psyche of the time? Well, I think to begin, you would have to start with the journey, right? And what the journey looks like from Los Angeles you know, Topanga Canyon, Malibu, where those guys live and their sort of vibe is accepted and not questioned, right? It starts there. And then as they sell out and they move towards middle America and getting towards Texas, you know, they're more and more criticized. And with that being said, I think that's the most opportune time to where they introduce Jack Nicholson, man, the lawyer, George is like the glue for them in order to understand that middle America still can be good and not what the perception of is it on the coasts almost. Is that true? Am I on to something or what do you think? I think so. I think that how it functions is that they really have three important meetings along their journey. There's the initial meeting with the people at the commune, and then there's the meeting with Jack Nicholson's character, and then there is the meeting with the people at the diner, the real rednecks. And I think that the communal people represent the sort of liberated, progressive, free love type aspect of American society at the time. And then the rednecks represent that conservative, intolerant tranche of society. And then George, Jack Nicholson's character, is right in the middle He's kind of that tweener where, you know, he's an alcoholic, but he's really afraid and nervous to start smoking weed. He's kind of square, but he is open to new experiences. So that's how I think he functions in the film. Yeah, really good point. And I forgot um, sequentially that the commune is first before the meeting of Jack Nicholson. Completely slipped my mind. So I don't want to veer off a course completely, but I do want to talk about that before we get back to George and that sort of thing. Sure. They get done with whatever theater service or whatever it was, and then they harvest some sort of food, and then they say a prayer around the food, but it starts with the guy 
Then it moves around the entire bungalow or whatever that structure was called. All the different people with the coolest outfits. But then I also think, are these just trust fund kids? Are these just like people that say they're free, but they're just trust fund kids that... And I don't know if that's too intense for this conversation, but... No, no, I think that's absolutely where we should go because I think that that's part of the social criticism. I think that the obvious is the critique of that redneck side, right? Because they're obviously intolerant and over the course of the movie, they end up killing all of the main characters because they are just so intolerant. And there's that great speech that... Jack Nicholson's character delivers where he says they're afraid of you because you represent freedom. And I think he does a really good job explaining the difference between the raw, raw wrapped in a flag freedom that conservatives like to espouse. And then the actual disgust they show for people who choose to live their lives in a way that is radically free. But I don't think it's as one dimensional as that when we consider the film as a whole, because I do think that in those scenes at the commune, you get a lot of observation and subtle interpretation suggesting that that lifestyle is flawed as well. I mean, for goodness sakes, Jared, those people, their big plan is to have a communal farm in the middle of the desert. <laughs> like clearly they are, they are portrayed as not having all their marbles together. Some of the people have so little practical skills to contribute that they just try to build this avant-garde theater troupe also in the middle of the desert. So I think that yeah, definitely. There's some trust fund kids who got a little bit upset after they graduated from Berkeley and went out to the desert. Okay, yeah. And then, you know, you talked also about Jack Nicholson, and then when he kind of lets his hair down, and then has that little speech by the campfire. I mean, that is really acting. It's probably the best you see in that, because Mm -hmm. that can go... Either way, I mean, if he hammed it up, I think it would come across as, I don't know what the word, corny? And the way he did it, like, you can clearly tell he is stoned. And then, <laughs> I'm jumping around, but I just, I'm just, things are coming to me as I'm talking about it. When he hops out of the, when they first get out of jail and he takes a swig off the pint of whiskey and he does that little, like, chicken dance, he's like, eh, eh. You know, he's make that crazy noise right out of the right out of there. Dude, that was hilarious, too. That freaking blew my mind. To me, the beauty of this movie isn't the story. I think it's the nature in the in the movement, just the movement in itself, just the movement of the of the motorcycles. It's like you're just picking up and going. Yeah. Is that type of freedom appealing to you? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But also it almost can be limiting. What do you mean by that? I feel like the real growth comes from staying still, but sometimes it's more familiar for me and I enjoy that energy more. The energy of being moving. Why is that? I don't know, man. I don't know exactly what it is other than a familiarity. I think sitting somewhere still for me, it just doesn't feel conducive to being happy or something. I don't know. No, that's that's totally fair. I know that you have been someone who's moved around a lot. Do you think that that has to do with the familiarity factor? I think so. I think so. And I also think that even before I moved around a lot, one of my favorite things to do, honestly, is drive a car. I like the road and I like the changing of environments 
post-college. So a little bit of back about what you're saying is graduated college in 2017 and have lived in, this will be Indianapolis here is my sixth city I've lived in. It's just that sort of movement, I think also made me choose this is my favorite movie and why it affected me so much. I don't think this movie affected me as much as it did when I very first watched it. I loved it when I very first watched it, but it was a different connection to it. Yeah. I think my first connection to it was the music, of course. Absolutely fantastic soundtrack. Like, I think this movie helped me really appreciate folk rock and his psychedelic rock, obviously. It was... Still at that time, I liked even them, but well, I think folk rock was, I learned a big appreciation for that after I watched this movie for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of the birds, a lot of Steppenwolf. But I, I did know this, is that the music licensing agreements, this movie had to change that. Because this, oh, really? It had to have, because they didn't have to pay these people. What do you mean? They didn't, I don't think they had to pay the people that had music on Easy Rider. They didn't have to pay them. How'd they yeah, get away they with that? They just to ask for permission. Yeah, that's that's not that way anymore. <laughs> Hopefully fact checks are um, going to be present after this. So sound off in the comments. Don't hurt my feelings if I'm wrong. <laughs> Please. I'm pretty sure what ended up having to happen was is they just got kind of a, a gentleman's handshake. And they're like, yep, we can put the music on here. When you're onto something for the first time, you're not aware you're onto something yet. I don't know. Too philosophical, man. This movie is not that philosophical. But it is, though, I think. I mean, I think that it is kind of the movie that captures the philosophical debate around the late 60s. What does freedom mean? How much freedom is desirable? What type of life do we want to live? And I think that is what makes it so powerful for me. You summarize it so well, I agree. And for me to think about what has changed since my initial watching of this and then now I think just obviously time, mm-hmm. understanding what I like more, understanding my tastes more. Sometimes I like movies to feel like a music video. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Other examples of that, what I would think of would be like the movie Belly. Uh, that's with DMX and Nas. Then like Spring Breakers even. Inten- kind of intense music. I mean, I don't want to say Easy Rider's music's really intense, but it's just really cool, you know, shots, colorful shots, nice nature. So yeah, let me loop back to something you mentioned earlier about how you feel a different connection to this film over time. Are there any other specific memories you have or memorable watching experiences? I think the most memorable time might have been the first time. I think at this time I was still in a partying phase and I thought that this was cool because they partied in a way that was similar to my style of partying, sort of. But like I thought that that was sort of cool. It's like, oh yeah, this is edgy. This is cool. So it caught me It caught me in with that, but then there's more to it than just that. It's not like it's... um Like some music is just a soundtrack to a party, but remove the party and it's not good music. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's music that's the soundtrack at a party that's good music without a party. What else do you love about it or find memorable about Easy Rider? How unfamiliar it would be to just kind of live off of the land. We don't know how long they've been living off of the land. We don't know what their backgrounds are and it doesn't really matter. But from the course of them traveling on bikes and, you know, he 
within the first little trek of the journey, he's like, oh, we got to go fix my bike. Let's go pull off somewhere and figure it out. They pull up to this place confident enough or charismatic enough to have these people just welcome them in and serve them food. You know, if my bike started to break down on that first little thing, you know, I'm just doing that on the side of the road and hope to God it works. <laughs> if yeah. not, maybe I'm packing up. Maybe maybe that's the end of my journey. But <laughs> they're not even rattled. Well, what do you make of that? The fact that it does seem like they are able to have different encounters with complete strangers along the way in a way that I agree does not feel possible today. I think that it's taking a page out of the Jack Kerouac, like these group or network of travelers that somehow always land on their feet, whether that's like the people that hop trains or go to bus stations or hitchhike. You know, there's this network of travelers at that time was promoted through that culture, I think, more than now. What do you think? I mean, I I really don't know. I just feel like there's this sense of safety that used to exist. And maybe it's even descended from our frontier times when we were more nomadic and it was more commonplace to just kind of ride your horse out somewhere and have to find lodging you kind of had no choice but to trust people and it's always been dangerous right i'm not trying to say that the wild wild west was some prelapsarian bastion of trust but i just think that maybe as time goes on and we're farther and farther away from that we get more guarded does that does that make sense at all yeah, I am completely on the same page. And you know what? That does make sense. I think that that's the perfect way to put it. And let's state the obvious. We are living in a time now where we're just coming out of this COVID period where we had to be intentionally separate from others. Strangers could kill you without even meaning to, you know, because the virus was so unknown we had no protection against it we had to keep our distance with that being said is culture during this time because we weren't near it easy rider time do you think that we tend to see it through rose-tinted glasses absolutely um there is a huge propensity towards having some sort of halo effect when we look back on the past But that's where I think Easy Rider really succeeds, is that by fusing the rosier imagery with a more biting social critique, I think that it's difficult to fall into that trap with this one. Yeah. I am going to go out on a limb and say, though, that I would rather be living in these times than those times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, where I want to live is as far in the future as you'll put me, you know, wherever the most technological advancement is, like, however far in the future I can get, send me there. But I would definitely rather be living now than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Absolutely. So now I wanted to think about what song would you choose in place of Born to be Wild? I think it would depend on the mood. There's this feeling in me right now that maybe it's more melancholy. You know, there's almost an elegiac feeling to it. And for some reason, I'm really feeling like Fire and Rain by James Taylor 
would fit that mood very well and still match the beauty of the scenery. What would you pick? James Taylor is a great thought there. I wouldn't, I didn't think about that one. I would go with, there's a psychedelic rock band, Brian's Jonestown Massacre song, Anamone. And uh, it's, it is a great soundtrack. It sounds like it was out in the desert. The song sounds like I, it sounds like a tumbleweed or something. And like, it's kind of a minimal song that they leave a lot of space for this awesome sounding guitar. There was something about, and almost like I want to try to figure this out on the fly here, about the last song going into their demise is It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding or something like that. It's a Bob Dylan song, but they play a cover. But I think those lyrics are such a perfect summary of that time. I'm not going to do service to this because I need to sing. I need to say these lyrics and rhythm, but I found some that really connected with me. As some worn victory, some downfall, private reasons, great or small, can be seen in the eyes of those that call to make all that should be killed to crawl, while others say don't hate nothing at all except hatred. Yeah, that definitely augments the theme of square America sort of hating them for being different. And it is a plea for more tolerance, which I think was very important at the time. And I think it's also important to remember all of the flag-wrapped freedom conservatives probably would have also really opposed the civil rights movement, which was happening at the time. You know, there was this very shallow sense of freedom that the quote-unquote patriots were espousing. And it was maybe some of the people who were more on the fringes of society who understood the value of that movement. Because there's that scene, right, where they go to the diner and no one will serve them. I don't want to say it's analogous to the experience of a black person who would be refused service, but it it reminds you of that. It's reminiscent of a civil rights struggle almost. The critique was at such a good time and it affected youth culture so well that it was able to get its point across in a really unique way. Dennis Hopper in this interview, when I watched one of these documentaries was saying he wanted to show that if they're not their specific version of white man, they're even killing you. Mm-hmm. Even Jack Nicholson, who's on the fence, get beats to death in his sleep. Mm-hmm. The story seems authentic. And I feel like it is authentic because if it wasn't authentic, it would come across as such. I feel like this would be something that if this is just done a tinge in inauthentic energy, you could easily feel it. I don't know what distribution looked like for this and what it took for it to be seen by enough people to where it had 60 million at the box office. I don't know how much money that is, but it's like a bajillion dollars today. So distribution had to be there. This opened the floodgates or was it just youth culture just really is that important to the marketplace of entertainment? Well, I do think that there is something to be said for the value of youth culture because I've thought about this a lot, actually. In entertainment marketplaces, production and trends follow where the money is. Young people, I think, are more likely to try new entertainment experiences, especially in music, because young people don't really have their tastes solidified yet when you're young you want to 
try a bunch of things and try new things. Once you're old, it's not necessarily that, you know, you're this stereotype of someone who's hateful and spiteful of new experiences, but it's just that you've lived long enough to figure out what you actually like and you don't need to try a bunch of things. The money that flows from young people looking to find their taste is what ends up driving a lot of production decisions, I think, and probably contributed to that box office success of Easy Rider. Yeah. Something that small to sell that many tickets is insane to me. Yeah, its budget was under half a million. So under half a million, and they got 60 million back, and it was independent, basically. Yeah, made its budget back 120 times over. I think the process is just as important of, as, as, as what the story and what the movie depicts for me. Why do you feel that way? I think the process allows me to understand someone's taste better. I feel like somebody that lets you in on the process is showing what their inspirations are. So you like having that fuller context. Yeah, the context. That's what it is. It's the context behind it. And then also the business, like all the things considered, right? Because this movie is so anti-establishment, but then it made all this money. That cross-section is nuts in my head. And it makes me think these two dudes with crazy egos, I'd only have to imagine, like, how did that money get split up? The, the, the thing that I'm trying to understand is now that they saw, and now that, when I mean they, the studio executive saw the success of this what imitations did we see or what risks were people allowed to make post this movie well remember too that the the movie doesn't exist in a vacuum this was part of the broader movement of new hollywood or the american new wave it's not just easy rider but it's the graduate and it's bonnie and clyde and Midnight Cowboy, all of these movies sort of started pushing the envelope, which led to the auteur wave of the 1970s. So that's all the Martin Scorsese movies, Michael Cimino, Francis Ford Coppola, who all got massive studio budgets. And sometimes they made masterpieces like The Godfather, and sometimes they made flops like Heaven's Gate. I think what the homework I have to do is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm creating my home, own homework on your podcast here. Go for it. And I'm and I'm telling you about it for some reason. But the homework <laughs> has to be what movies predated Easy Rider for motorcycle movies because apparently I'm looking here and there's two. What are they? They're Peter Fonda movies. One is called The Wild Angels is one of them. And then there's another one after that. But anyway, I want to see what those look like too because I'm sure there's good things that come out of those that they were able to expand on and what worked in those they did for Easy Rider. but Yeah, especially if Fonda was involved, and I'm sure he had experience. I think to kind of wrap things up, man, you know, what really helps me pick a favorite is how quickly can I jump into this world? How easy is it to digest? Because sometimes, for instance, the new Kendrick album, I've been thinking that the new Kendrick album's like a like a kombucha drink or like a probiotic. It's like it's not my first choice of beverage. <laughs> it's a probiotic. It's helping my gut health. It's it, it tastes okay. 
It's they got a ginger and lemon one that's pretty good. I like it. It's good for me. It makes me feel good. I feel like I'm getting something from it. But sometimes, man, it's just like you just want like your favorite meal or water or something that you know, like regardless of if it's effect, you just know instantly how it's going to make you feel to where it's not like it's um some sort of bunch of plated little fancy meal. It's just like one meat and potatoes, man. I feel like that's yeah. what this movie is for me. It's not assuming. It's not too sophisticated. It definitely has its tone that kind of resides in some sophistication, but it doesn't live there. So I definitely get what you're saying. So let me ask you, how does Easy Rider make you feel when you watch it? Well, I know it makes me feel like it's good to not always have a plan and don't be paralyzed by trying to make up a plan. Does that feel reassuring to you or inspiring or, or some other word? This movie's grounded in a philosophy of freedom. And I think that controlled emotion and free will is a tightrope. And it makes me feel like not any pressure or reassurance, but some sort of motivation that closure and that concept of knowing outcomes is not necessarily a good thing. And I think that the philosophy of Wyatt in the movie of feeling so lax and under control and Dennis Hopper's character, Billy is more hyper. Let's go, let's move, let's go, you know, let's, let's, let's go, go, go. I think that that fights all of us. And I think that it's just a reminder that you're not alone sometimes with certain things. You're not alone with these experiences, which are so far removed from my reality, but everybody's those kind of characters in their own story. We all feel so alone sometimes. That's kind of the human condition, right? And so to get that reminder is a very potent emotional experience. And for me, music just connects so strong. Like the music in this connects with me so they got The Weight by the band on here. They have Born to be Wild, The Pusher. I mean, those songs are like some of my favorite songs ever. And they only became even more my favorites within the context of this movie, I feel like. So it makes me feel charged up for sure, man. Sometimes I just get charged up like this. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, man. Maybe it's testosterone or something. I don't know. It's almost like elevation, I would say. Right. Yeah, especially just the, the thought of just sleeping outside even every night, sleeping outside next to a fire, not, not even worried. Oh, how do we start a fire? We need to get the stuff for the fire. We need to get this. We need to get some food. We got to figure out how we're going to eat. There's never that ur You don't feel that urgency. And in my mind and in my reality, I try to limit that urgency, but I'm only human. And that's okay. It's good to be in touch with our humanity. To put a bow on this thing, man, I just wanted to say that I sincerely appreciate you allowing me to talk about my favorite movie. And I think that it's important for me to really hash this out with you because you're good at helping me figure these things out. And I hope that we'll be able to do one of these in the future. So right on, man. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all of your insight about Easy Rider. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Jared's interview ties together nicely a lot of the themes that have come up so far in the show. 
as with Dazed and Confused last week, the soundtrack is a memorable element. Film really is a sublime multi-sensory experience. I appreciate that Jared chose a classic of American cinema, because this reinforces the idea that film is multi-generational in its appeal. As I've said before, it's easier to access old movies for me than to access television or literature of a similar vintage. As with all of our guests so far, Jared described a personal connection to Easy Rider. In this case, he relates to the nomadic feeling of the open road due to his post-collegiate lifestyle. I love how he cut to the point in voicing his ultimate consideration of the film's quality by asking, How quickly can I dive into this world? As I discussed when talking about miniseries Brain During Pete's episode, I feel that film brings a unique economy of storytelling that episodic structure sorely lacks. Easy Rider is fully immersive from the very first frame. I also like how this discussion of Easy Rider spotlights how cinema contributes to forging a national identity. So much in here is a reflection on what it means to be American during a changing time. I wouldn't say this is necessarily exclusive to cinema. However, as the dominant cultural art form of the 1960s, film was perfectly positioned to document the state of our world at that pivotal juncture. Art is a mirror and we should always be willing to question if we like the reflection staring back at us. Your favorite movie is produced and edited by me, Evan Kelly. Logo designed by Walker Kelly. Music by Morgan Bennett. Special thanks to Lindsay Kelly. If you like the show, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. You can also reach the show on Facebook or by emailing favoritemoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd especially love to hear from you if you're listening from outside the U.S. If you want to support the show even more, consider sharing this episode with a friend. New listeners are key to the show's growth. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶